we've been going through this study of Nehemiah, and we're getting to this, uh, we're getting to this spot in Nehemiah um, where the wall's just about done. Um, and you might go, well, then why are there a bunch more chapters here? Well, because the work's not done. And we, we've been recounting in past weeks how God has, has brought um, Nehemiah um, from this place he, six months ago he never would have thought he would be at. Six months ago he was, you know, he had this great job and he was influential, he was powerful. I mean, think about it. He was, he was like the most trusted advisor of the most powerful person in, in that entire area. He's, he has so much. He could have easily convinced himself that he shouldn't give up that spot, not even for a little while. He shouldn't risk it because he could have convinced himself about how much good he could have done for, for God and his people if he held on to that position. But six months go by and life is no longer the same. He's, he's moved hundreds of miles. He's in a brand new area and he's trying to help his people get reestablished in that area. So fast, six months. And, you know, we, we, we look at that and, and, and we understand that Nehemiah, to, to do what he's doing, he has to keep these two things in mind. Two things that really we need to do in our lives. And it's, it's these two things about what do I need to do in the short term and what do I need to do in the long term? Um, if life is good and, you know, pretty smooth, short term, long term never come into conflict. Short term um, helps feed long term. You have long term goals, you have long term plans, what you do in the short term helps you get there. That's in the perfect world, right? If you, uh, you know, if you're, if, you know, younger person or when, when you were younger and you had a career goal and you realized to get to that career goal, I had to take certain steps along the way. Maybe, you know, you thought about that when you're in high school and you had to focus on high school. But you always kept in mind where you were going. Well, again, that's something that we face so many times in our lives. And honestly, sometimes we, we make mistakes. Sometimes people are, are so focused on the long term that they forget what's like right in front of them. You know, life that has to be lived right now. And they're always thinking about life tomorrow, life years from now. And they forget to live today. And then there's the opposite problem. There's the people that only live today and they don't, they don't think about it. They don't think about years from now. They don't have long-term goals, long-term ob objectives. And both of them, you know, are huge problems if you, if you only, you know, focus on one. And I think most of us who've lived for 
any period of time know that. We've, we've done that. We've done one or the other. We, we got so focused in what was right in front of us that we lost picture of the, of the bigger thing. And it can be discouraging. I mean, if everything's going well in life, it's great, and you just keep going, and then eventually, you know, you make it to whatever the long-range goal was. But when things get hard, and you forget the long-range, it's a problem. Plus, sometimes we sacrifice. We sacrifice one for the other. We sacrifice whatever our, our long-term goal was, our long-term purpose, and we sacrifice it for you know, what's right in front of us today. It's, again, it's, it's, it's not really a, I don't want to say it's a problem, it's just, it's just life. It's what we have to think about. And so, unfortunately, what happens is people do compromise. And the way we usually compromise, especially in our world, is we usually compromise the long term for the short term. You know, we, I've, heard about, I've heard this said since, um, at least since the 70s. And so some of you who have longer memories than me, uh, you maybe, maybe can go back decades more where it's, people started saying in the 70s, like, oh, we live in an instant culture, a now culture. And, you know, you, those of you who grew up in the 70s and you compare it to today, you realize how comical that was. But 70s compared to 50s, 60s, 40s, yeah, it was a, it was a much more, like, instant, you know, thing. I mean, anybody that I had the uh, opportunity to use the Internet when it first came out. And uh, we, we actually, I was at the University of Hawaii and we were sending email. And it took so long. I literally could have, and it was just right across campus, I could have written the message and hand carried it over there faster. But, you know, nowadays it, it happens instantaneously. But what we thought was, was fast in the 70s, instant in the 70s, it's like we think that's slow now because everything is so much faster. We live in today. We live for the short term. We, we don't, you know, this, this can cause a problem because oftentimes we lose this really important thing that, that if we're going to make long-lasting change, it takes time. History shows us that radical change rarely, if ever, lasts. And a lot of times it's like, it's like building a sandcastle. As soon as the next tide comes in, it's as though it was never there. And so we face this. And I think in organizations, and whether they be businesses or um, you know, churches, that this is why we need good leaders. I think we need good leaders because good leaders keep us from forgetting are long-term. They keep us from forgetting what's most important. They keep us from forgetting who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it. And so if you want to, if you want to have an, a, like a, an effect on a church, then you, know, you go after the leaders. You, you get the leaders not to be thinking and staying focused on who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it. 
And the closer we get to the finish of something, the more tempting it is to compromise the short term for the long term. Here's Nehemiah getting really close to finishing this wall, this major project. But Nehemiah never forgot what the long-term project was. The wall was just part. It was just an important step. But the long-term was reestablishing God's people as the covenant people. He's rebuilding a nation. He's not simply building a wall. And it's tempting. He's going to be tempted in this chapter. And it, it's difficult because the, the, the pressure to compromise short-term over long-term when we're dealing with a group, and especially whether it's a church or Nehemiah, a much more complicated situation, is that, is that just like when you are going through that short-term, long-term, you know, should I spend this money now? Should I save it? You know, should I make this move now? Or should I stay? When you're thinking about that short-term, long-term, you know that there are pros and cons to both, to both situations. The problem that happens when it becomes a, a group, like a church, is that you can have within that group certain people advocating for the short and certain people advocating for the long. And as the leader, it becomes really difficult. You know, because some people are like, you know, there are people who are, who are needy right now. We need to help them now. Let's get out there and help them now. And then there's other people like, you know, Jesus said we'll always have poor. There will always be people in need. We need to be strengthening ourselves so we're here for the long haul. You know, I... I I think I told you guys this about, you know, one of the things that really clinched it for me to go to seminary. And it was, you know, this, the importance of, of getting training. Because, you know, if you go to seminary, and I'm pretty sure it's, it, it's true, it's always been true, that a lot of the students at seminary don't want to be there. And sometimes it's because they're a little bit arrogant. I know you can't believe pastors could possibly be arrogant, but some of them are. And so some of them think like, oh, I know everything already. I don't need this training, but I need a degree. So they want to go get a degree. And seminary's full of those guys. Um, but there's others that it's not that they don't need the training. It's that they have such a passion such a heart for ministry. They want to serve, and they want to serve now. And they, they're willing to compromise like the long term for just getting in there right now and doing whatever needs to be done. And I'm going to tell you, both arguments can sound good, and it's hard when you're dealing with a group where one side is saying, we need to be doing everything right now to meet the needs right in front of us. And another group is saying, no, we need to be thinking about the long haul. The leader has the job of trying to keep both of those together. Things we're doing today and things that we're doing that's investing in the future of the, of the church. 
Of course, that's hard to do. It's hard to do for the leader if the leader doesn't, first of all, have that in his own mind. And it's also hard to do if there's a lack of trust. Because, again, people can question either one of those positions. And sometimes, if you're trying to actually take the more appropriate position, which is to hold those two together, you know, it's kind of like you're in the middle of the road. And I remember a long time ago, somebody said, the worst place to be is in the middle of the road, because that's where you can get run over. And it's true. And so, Nehemiah has to, to deal with this because he's going to be presented with some options. And so the wall around Jerusalem, it's nearly rebuilt. And Nehemiah's enemies know that. So in chapter 6, we read, Now in Sanbalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. I know what you're thinking, Ono. Was it delicious? Um, not sure. Um, but he's, he gets this, these enemies and they're, they're saying, hey, let's, let's meet. And the reason, the pretense of why they want to meet is probably something like, all right, Nehemiah, you know, we respect you now. You're a leader. We're leaders. Let's get together. Let's, let's, let's make everything work out. And Nehemiah could have said at that point that, you know what? Wall's practically done. We just got to put the gates up. Got it. This is great. This is a, this is a great next step. You know, um, let me just go. Let me go talk to these guys. It's, you know, let's make, let's make nice. But he realizes they intended to do him harm. You see, they, they, they realized that they no longer could go after the people. Their first approach had been to go after the people, but they realized they couldn't. The people were getting closer to success, and in their minds, they didn't realize that the closer you get to success, the more you are in danger. Because the enemy is going to become more and more desperate. And the enemy realizes they can't go after the people, but they can take out the leader. What the enemy knows is the enemy has a long memory. And you know what the, you know what the enemy's memory is? Before that leader came along, they had gone a hundred years and not been able to build this wall. How many people had come along and tried to build the wall? How many people had tried to rally the people and we were, they either failed on their own or we took care of them? Nehemiah is different. And they rightly understood 
there's not a lot of Nehemiahs out there. We just take out Nehemiah, we're good. That's all going to fall apart. And if you, by the way, are cheering for the enemies, it's a good plan. Hopefully you're not. But if you were cheering for the enemies, it's a good plan. It makes sense. They just don't do it very well. But even though this particular passage doesn't talk about this, you know, Nehemiah is somebody who always took counsel. You read that again and again. He does, he does two things before he makes his major action. He always prays and he takes counsel. So you've got to know that, that he just didn't like make the decisions that he's going to make just on his own. He's going to pray about it. He's going to take counsel. And you, you have to know that there, if he's taking counsel, that there's going to be people that are going to be going through that short-term, long-term thing with him. There's going to be people who are going to make the argument for meeting with these guys, and there's going to be those who are going to be against it. You see, sometimes when we first start out doing something, we can be incredible risk takers because we don't think we have anything to lose. You know, whether that's in your personal life or, you know, I've seen churches that when they first start out, they don't have anything. And they're, they, they're willing to do anything. Their faithfulness, they're uncompromising on truth because they don't have anything. They don't have anything to lose, at least not in an earthly sense. But those same churches, when they start to kind of grow and, and you know, and see some, you know, some, some success in terms of you know, bringing more people in, maybe you know, even being able to get property or to you know, rent space, and they start to see that. Sometimes that, that we'll risk everything, we will stay true to God's word no matter what. You know, there's this feeling of, let's, let's, Let's slow down for a little while. There's this word they talk about in church growth and it's called plateau. Plateau, um, I'm not sure exactly what you know, the, the background of the word is. Plateau usually means like level off. Um, but um, this is what I think it really means. Plateau is, 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 is the last stage before death. Plateau is rarely the stage that leads to future growth. And yet so many groups, so many churches will convince themselves that we need to slow down. We're growing too fast. You know, we, we, we were growing because, because people were drawn to the message that we were people of God's word. We were going to live God's word. We we're going to study God's word. We're going we're gonna to do what God's word says in terms of loving each other and caring for each other and reaching out to our community. And God is blessing us, but we need to slow down and we need to kind of stabilize that. And then, then we'll go again. I've never seen that work. 
Never. Plateau is usually the stage before death. Now let me tell you something. Um, you can plateau for a long time. You can stay. You, you accomplished your purpose. We gained, we solidified our gains, and now we're just going to hold on to that. And you can do that for a long, long time. But make no mistake, if something doesn't happen that changes that mindset, that gets back to that mindset of the faithful who say, God, whatever you say, however you want us, we're going to go, no matter the cost. Even if it costs us everything we think we gained, we are willing to follow you. If you don't regain that attitude, it's just the stage before death. You know, we, we sometimes find different reasons to convince ourselves of this. Sometimes we compare ourselves to the past and we go, you know, we're, we're better than we were in the past, so, you know, I think we're good enough. Two words that are just, that are just death to Christians, death to churches. Good enough. Think about that. What is good enough if you're a Christian? What is good enough if you're a church? Nothing is. Because we have been given such a high standard. And it's great that we have this high standard because we know we can, we can keep moving towards that standard our whole lives and it's never enough. As individual Christians, our standard is we want to be like Jesus Christ. As the church, we want to be the body of Christ. At what point have we achieved enough that we can say, good enough. It's death. And the the more we progress, the more we think we're near the end, the easier it is to kind of slow down, solidify our gains. Good enough is good enough. Well, that's not the enemy's last try. Nehemiah responds. He says, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel that is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. This is a fancy way of saying, Nehemiah, we're just trying to save you from yourself. You, you know, this is what's, people are saying about you. 
We're your friends. We want to help you. Nehemiah says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. You know, one of the things that you may think is a disadvantage at being a Christian, I don't. But sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I think about it. But the enemies of Christianity, the enemies of God's people, the enemies of truth do not have to play fair. They don't have to play fair. We do. We have accepted a higher standard. We claim to be the people of truth. We don't get to play the clever games that the rest of the world plays. And in a world where it's just about power and who can control and who can win, who loses, in that world, it takes a lot of faith to engage that world, not willing to play by the world's rules. Well, look at what Sanballat is doing here. And this is why I say he's not doing a very good job of it because he says he's four times they basically say the same message to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's like, no. And, and the dead giveaway, by the way, I think Nehemiah already knew it, but if he needed it to be confirmed or if he needed to convince some of his advisors that, that these guys are up to no good, is because if they were really interested in peace, they wouldn't have said, Come meet us in this village over on the plain of Ono, which was about seven miles away, closer to their territory. They would have said, you know what? We'll come to you. We'll come to you. And as a matter of fact, we'll, we'll, we won't even go in your city because that might be threatening. But we'll come to you and, and we'll talk with you outside your city. They never offer that. They keep offering the same thing and Nehemiah sees right through it. And then on the fifth time, changes tactics again. And this time, Sanballat uses the oldest way to try to undermine somebody. The oldest way. And that is to use the Old Testament equivalent of, you know what they're saying? You know what people are saying? They identify some of the people, but they don't really identify who these people are. I was talking on Wednesday night, and it was advice I got when I was younger, and I'm glad I got it, and I live by it. If people aren't willing to own their words, then I can't listen to them. And that's true whether 
somebody is coming to me and wants to talk about somebody else, my, what I will say to them is, if you say this to me, at some point in time, we, you have to be willing to, to own this. I'm not going to go to them and say, you know what people are saying? And then if people tell me that, if I don't know who the people are, I can't give a lot of credence to their words. If I get anonymous letters, I don't even read them. I throw them away. So if you're going to send me a million dollars, please put your name on it. Because otherwise I might throw it away. But it's the age-old trick. It's the age-old trick. Oh, you know what they're saying? You know what the scuttlebutt is? And it, the reason it's age old is because it works. You just need to shake the leader's confidence a little. You just need the leader to start thinking like, who's saying this? Who can I count that's on my side? And who is, you know, on the other side? That's, that's all you need. Just got to get that seed out there. They're trying to intimidate him. They're trying to scare him. And it's just not going to work. Because for some reason, again, these guys aren't very good. They didn't either do their reconnaissance, which they should have done. They didn't do their study. They didn't do their research. Or they did and they just completely disregarded. Because what we know is Nehemiah is the most trusted advisor that the king of Persia has. And Nehemiah knows. He knows the king of Persia. He knows the king of Persia isn't going to listen to rumors about him. That even if he might think it could be true, he's going to come and talk to Nehemiah. For some reason, they don't realize that he is building the wall that the king told him to build. So he can tell them, what you're saying, it's not true. You're inventing them out of your own mind. But their intent is what they said. They want to frighten it. They want to frighten the people. They want them to think like, oh no, it's not just these little surrounding, you know, areas that want to attack us. It's the big bad king of Persia. They don't realize that Nehemiah knows that king way better than they do. And so they're willing to lie. They're willing to lie about the leader. And Nehemiah doesn't fall for this. He doesn't say like, oh no, they're lying. I, I need to, I, you know, I need to um, make sure, you know, truth is getting out there. It's, and he's not going to say, well, I need to lie about them. Again, the enemies of God's people do not have to play fair. But God's people do. 
Because we're not just out there engaging in um, conflict or anything. Whether we're engaging in conflict or whether we're getting along with everybody, we are still doing the same thing. We are representing God. We're representing who he is. We're representing the, the gospel, our faith. We're, we're trying to be ambassadors for Christ. We, we don't have that option. It's not about winning that particular battle. It's not about the short term. It's about the long term. The hope for the world is not that one church will get it right and everybody will go, hey, let's, let's, we get it now. Let's, let's, be, let's be like that church. No. If we haven't figured it out already, it's been 2,000 years. 2,000 years since the resurrection. God never intended it to be a quick thing. It takes time. And sometimes we just get so like impatient. And if we don't see God doing things in ways that we want him to do things right now, we're like, oh, I'm just going to go on to the next thing. I'm going to find another you know, church where something's happening. Well, again, the, the lasting changes, they take time. Well, the enemy's not done. In verse 10 he says, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabo, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Again, back to this theme of fear that keeps coming up. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to say it again, that the faithful, that we have to be we have to be driven by faithfulness and not fear. We have to be careful in our midst. It's okay to be afraid. People are, you know, in the Bible, people are afraid all the time. But we cannot let fear control us. And we cannot let the fearful override the faithful. Faithfulness, not fear. That's what needs to direct God's people. And so they're, they're trying to play on this here. They're, they're you know, the, it's this kind of weird attempt that, that they're saying, you know, you're going to be killed and, and, um, and it's, you know, going to happen now, right now, and, and let's go run into the temple and, and hide. 
And again, it's these guys presenting themselves as his friends, but they're not his friends. This is a very elaborate plot, a lot of moving pieces that had to take place for this to be, you know, for this to happen. But the hope is, is that, you know, here's a a prophet, maybe even somebody who was part of the priests that, that Nehemiah would have known and perhaps trusted. He trusts him enough to go over to his house. But this guy had been bribed and they had made a plan. And who knows? They might have been thinking they're doing a good thing. Maybe they believe that Nehemiah was leading them down this path. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we, we get into this um, kind of thing where all confrontation is bad. I'm going to tell you, most confrontation that happens is, is not good, and it's not, it's not helpful. But not all confrontation is bad. And a lot of times some well-meaning people will, will say, like, if, if something is moving to a point where there's going to be confrontation... Well-meaning people, well-meaning Christians will try to give advice as much as possible to avoid it. When confrontation is necessary, it's necessary. And we have to be willing to be able to discern the difference. And, and when it is necessary, that we don't just say, hey, it's necessary, so let's just go you know, all out war against each other. No, you still do everything in a manner that's pleasing to God, that's representative of who he is, that it's Christians coming together if they need to come together. But when it's a conflict outside the church and it's a conflict you know, with, with the world, sometimes it's, it's necessary. You know, there were, in, in Hawaii, it was, you know, during the pandemic, there was a quick kind of switch you know, they, they, they started out doing like what a lot of things on the mainland were doing regarding, you know, telling churches things about what churches could do and couldn't do. And, and you know, pretty early on, I recognized, you know, this is a serious breach of our Constitution. But, you know, fortunately, I think they started to change the language eventually and change you know, what they would say about churches. But not every state did this. There were states in, in, in you know, in, on the mainland that you know, they, they kept imposing more and more stringent restrictions. Not, not here to debate whether it's right or wrong, but if you believe that the church is independent of the state, if that's what you believe the Bible teaches us, then at some point in time, you are going to come in conflict with the state. And I'm not saying this was the right time, this was the right situation, but I'm telling you, it, it should happen at some point. Otherwise, we are going to simply say, we will be the church and as long as the government allows us. We will be the church as long as society allows us. By the way, that would, that would, I think, cause the early Christians in the first three or four centuries to like turn over in their graves. 
because they were in, they, you know, they were like growing in this, in this empire that at times brutally repressed them, said that their religion was illegal. And if they had gone along with, I think some of our mentality today would have been like, eh, you know, government says it's a bad idea, so we're just not going to do it. No, they found ways. And they found ways without ever going to war. They found ways without ever fighting with anyone or killing anyone. They found ways to be the church. They didn't avoid the conflict. They faced the conflict in a way that was pleasing to God because of their faithfulness. It's pretty amazing. If you've never read, if you've never read the church history from the first three or four centuries of the church, you need to read. This is, this is who, who we are called to be. I'm not saying they were perfect. They, they got a lot of things wrong. But what they didn't get wrong, they didn't get wrong. We need to be God's people regardless of what the rest of the world says. Faithfulness, not fear. I'm going to tell you, you know, it's hard, you know, to not give in to fear. We've never faced this. We've never faced that we could be arrested just for gathering here. We've never faced that, that we could be executed. We've never faced that. We don't know what that's like. But the reason I think it's so important to read about our brothers and sisters in Christ from, from you know, 16, 1700 years ago and our brothers and sisters of Christ right now in situations not like ours is to be reminded that, that when the danger is there, when the threats are there, our faithfulness, if we're truly God's people, our faithfulness must be what's supreme. We cannot live in fear. Nehemiah doesn't. You know, they're, they're trying to get him to go into the temple because if they can, they're going to get like this double effect. First of all, here's this strong leader in his own city who isn't safe. That's why he says, why, do, why should a man such as I run, do that? Why should I run away? I'm in my own city. I have supporters here. I'm not going to run. And the second thing they're trying to get him to do is they're trying to get him to compromise. They're trying to get him to go into the temple. And Nehemiah knows, according to God's law, he has no right to go into the temple, even to save his own life. Again, compromising the long term for the short term. Today, you need to save your life. Forget, those, forget that law stuff, that covenant stuff. Just save your life. Get in there, and then later on, we'll sort it all out. He knew that if he went in there, he faced two problems. One, the less important problem, was that how could he ever 
stand before the people and say, we are going to be God's people, his covenant. We're going to follow when he had violated it to save his own life. Once he did that, once he crossed the line, everybody else could have gone, okay, I get it. We follow the law unless there's something we decide is more important, and then we don't, right? Is that, the, is that how it works, Nehemiah? And I think in Nehemiah's mind, that was hugely important, but it was the second problem. The most important problem, he knew that for whatever reason, God had established that. And he wanted his relationship with God to be right. I think he feared much more what would happen with his relationship with God than his relationship with the people. And for both reasons, he doesn't, he doesn't do it. They want to make him afraid. Nehemiah is like, no, I don't live in fear. I might get killed, but I'm going to be killed being faithful and not fearful. And so in verse 15, it says this, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So the wall's almost finished, okay? And then it is finished. And it took 52 days, which scholars look back and go, that can't be true. Well, I think that's the whole point. They did something that everybody knew was not possible unless God helped them. They had done the impossible, So when we look back and we think like, ah, you know, it probably took more than 52 days. No. If it took three years, everybody would have, they wouldn't have gone, God did that. We could have done that. They might have even thought we could have done that in two years. 52 days. But here's the thing. The, The wall represents a finish line, but it's not the finish line. The finish line is not the finish line. It's just finishing that project. They're there to rebuild the nation. There's still problems, and we read about those problems there. We read that there are still people who have allegiances to some of these enemies around them. That that there's spies in Nehemiah's midst who are going and reporting to his enemies. The problem's not over, and Nehemiah has, is is not deceived. Oh, we got the wall, we're going to celebrate. Yep, they're going to celebrate. But the work's not done. It's one of the things I, I tell my runners when we race is like, you know, you know, first of all, 
you run through the finish line, don't run to the finish line. But when we're at track meets, it's like, okay, your race is done. Get ready for the next one. And I think sometimes in, again, in, in church life, we want to think like, okay, let's, let's do this project. Let's get this project. Let's start this ministry. Start this program. Let's get to this point. Oh, we've made it to the finish line. Whew, now we're, we're done. It's like, no. We, we did that race to get to the next race. It doesn't end. God is plan is so much bigger than us and yet in his mercy and love and wisdom he gives us he gives us a size of that plan that's going to stretch us that's more than we think we can do but he says you can do it because I will do it with you It's the importance of leaders, importance of Nehemiah, keeping the people focused, understanding the race isn't done. And I say this about leaders, but it's really true of all of us. We, we need to watch out for each other. We need to be praying for each other. Yeah, you need to pray for your leaders. It's true. I'm going to tell you, you need a lot of it. But we also need to be praying for each other. We need to be watching each other. I was, you know, doing counseling earlier, you know, about a couple weeks ago. And at the end of that counseling session, you know, I asked, you know, do you have any questions or comments? And, and, and what the person told me was, you know what? I, I want you, I want, I want to see how you can have less of a load. And I thought, that's weird. But you know, that's good. Are we looking out for one another? Do we understand the situations, especially our leaders are in, the decisions they have to make, how they have to hold together different groups, while how everybody might not be on their side? Let's pray for each other. Let's realize God isn't done with us yet. He's not just building projects. He's building his church. And this church is helping to build his kingdom. The work is going to go far past our lifetime. Help us to be faithful.